Hi, I'm Kate Montague. And I'm Jess Bennett. And you're listening to the Audio Craft Podcast, a series of sessions from our 2018 festival, recorded on the day by ABC RN. Each year, we put a different podcast in the spotlight and go deep with our favourite creators to learn how they pull together an episode of their program. This year, we asked Robert Smith to go under the hood with NPR's Planet Money, which he both reports on and presents. While holding a microphone, Roberts drilled for crude oil, launched a satellite into space and harvested cotton for the Planet Money t-shirt. For this session, he travelled all the way from New York to share his tips for taking complex economic ideas and turning them into great human stories. I just wanted to read a brief warning first. Uh, The following talk reveals that my life's work is based on tricks and formulas. Uh, You may have trouble listening to the show ever again. Uh, Seriously, Uh, you may want to leave for certain sections. Um, Thank you, everyone, for having me here. Uh, This is the 10-year anniversary of Planet Money. We have done 845 episodes that we know of. because, Because at the beginning... At the beginning of podcasting, nobody thought to number them because, like, how long was it possibly going to last? So there's all these episodes that we have no idea what their number is. Uh, We're probably close to a 1,000 shows. And one of the most interesting things and daunting things about working for this program is that um, a lot of shows, they talk about, oh, you know, you have to find your voice. You have to sort of explore what you want to do and your themes and your mission statement. Uh, We had the opposite problem, which is our very first episode was almost perfect, almost impossible to live up to. It was called The Giant Pool of Money, and it aired on This American Life. It was created by Adam Davidson and Alex Bloomberg. And the show was about the origins of the global financial crisis. And people talk to me about this show all the time, and they're like, oh, it was amazing. It broke all these news. It was investigative. Uh, it was none of those things. Uh, if, you, if you read the Wall Street Journal, you knew everything in this program. But what it did is it took these scary global forces that for the first time everyone is waking up and saying, wait, what is happening to me in my life? And it made it into something that you could understand. So instead of talking about collateralized debt obligations, you met a guy named Clarence who borrowed far too much money for his house. Uh, how much did he borrow? Call it 540 for round figures. You basically borrowed $540,000 from the bank and they didn't check your income. All right. It's a no income verification loan. They don't call me up and say, you know, how much money? They don't do that. I mean, it's, it's almost like you pass a guy in the street and you say, hey, you lend me $540,000? He said, well, what do you do? I got a job. Okay. I mean, it, 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 it seems as if it's that casual, even though there are a lot of papers that get filled out and stuff flies all over with the faxes and the emails and all like that. Essentially, um, that's the process. Would, would, would you have loaned you the money? I wouldn't have loaned me the money. And... Um, Nobody that I know would have loaned me the money. I mean, I know guys who are criminals that wouldn't lend me that money, and they break your kneecap. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I don't know why the bank did it. First show, uh, ever since then, I've been hunting for someone as good as Clarence. Uh, We've come close, but it's hard to get that combination of self-awareness and humor And you just love him, and he's both a victim and a perpetrator of the financial crisis at the same time. Uh, But really, like, what this show did for us is it gave us a a mission statement, which is our job is to make the abstract real, to take the forces of economics and to make it human. And the the Giant Pool of Money won every journalism award there was. Uh, It was so magical. It was so unique that NPR said hey, why don't you do that again? Twice a week, forever. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Robert Smith. I'm required to say that. Today, the big question that keeps me awake at night, how do you manufacture magic like that with a weekly deadline? And at Planet Money, we've never really written down any how-tos or (laughs) any guides for new reporters, as they will tell you. Um, So I'm going to try to do it now. I'm going to try to outline our production process, give you sort of five 
big tips, tricks that we do, uh, from story conception to the way we read our scripts. And I'll take some questions at the end. Because this is the make session, you don't have to like be pretentious or ask me big questions about the universe. You can ask me like totally detailed insider gossipy questions, and that's what this session is for. And, and by the way, you always make a promise, uh, I'm gonna reveal for the first time the secret for handling numbers on the radio. Hmm. If I had a PowerPoint, I would go click, and it would say, step one, find the little story inside the big idea. So, if the goal is to make the abstract real, then every story has to have two things. It has to have this huge idea, and it has to have a reason to keep listening. It has to have a story. And the big question part is pretty easy for us, because you can open any economics textbook. Uh, pick supply and demand, or trade tariffs, or uh, Phillips curve. It's for the Kiwi in the room, <laughs> and the economist, and the economist in the room. <laughs> and, and the way it works is that the most important thing that happens at Planet Money happens at 10.30 in the morning on a Tuesday. There are 11 of us on staff. We all go into a, a tiny conference room with a great view of the Empire State Building, and uh, the editor makes uh, a a big pot of coffee in order to prove that editors are valuable and a part of the creative process. Uh, and we sort of go through all of our story pitches, people pitching stories to us and our own story ideas. So when people start, they start immediately with um, pitching us big story ideas. So the classic is uh, the economics of X. Someone comes in, they're like, oh, I, want to, I want to explore the economics of dog grooming. And then they always say the next sentence, which is, it's a $20 billion business. And you're like, yeah, it's all $20 billion businesses in the United States. Um, dog grooming, I'm sure, is fine. But the, the problem there is the word explore, which just tells you from the beginning, like, I don't have a direction. I don't have a reason for doing this story. So instead, what we're trying to do in the pitch is to we just lightly touch the big idea, and we really say, like, how are we going to tell this story? And everyone has their own tricks for this. And it's interesting to see how people get these two things, the big idea and the little story. So my particular way to do it is I read the most boring stuff you can imagine. I just read it all day long. And they're just about ideas. There's no humans in it. There's nothing in it except for these big economic ideas. And then I file them away in the back of my head. I just keep them there. And then I go out into the world and I wait for something to kind of do a little spark, to say like, hey, that thing you were reading about, this is it. Like, you're seeing it, and it's weird and it's amazing. It's like sort of seeing, I guess, probably like birding, you know? You're like, oh, I want to see that rare bird. So, um, for instance, uh, I was really into cartels. Uh, cartels are a group of producers who uh, collaborate to fix prices, like OPEC or uh, the Cali Drug Cartel. And cartels are amazing because it's based on greed, right? They all come together because they're greedy and they want to raise prices. But because they're all greedy, they all stab each other in the back. And cartels always break apart. Anyway, I read about them, put it in the back of my head, and then I saw it. Not too long ago, I was in Switzerland, Geneva specifically. And of course, while I was there, I did the thing you were expected to do in Switzerland. I ordered fondue. Just the plain fondue? Perfect. Thank you. It is a weird meal when you think about it, especially as a main dish. It is just melted cheese and stale bread. Like, that is it. It's like something a divorced dad thought up to feed his eight-year-old. In fact, my waiter even came over with a spoon so I could scrape out the bottom of the pot. The end of the fondue that one, is uh, the best part of the fondue. Just to scrape off the cheese on the bottom? Yes, because it's so famous in Switzerland. Since I was sadly eating alone, I sat there goofing around on my phone, like trying to answer this question. I was Googling history of fondue. And that's when I learned that this whole fondue thing is not what it seems. The reason I was eating fondue, the reason that I even know about fondue, the reason I actually own an unused fondue pot that I got as a wedding gift, all of this goes back to a shadowy association of Swiss cheese dealers. A cheese cartel that basically ruled the Swiss economy for 80 years, until fairly recently. The Schweizer Kasse Union, which sounds scary until you hear the English translation. The Swiss Cheese Union. The Swiss Cheese Union is at the root of a fondue conspiracy. 
So that's literally how I got the story idea, and that's what we made the top of the show. Just told you exactly how it went, and then we chased down the fondue conspiracy. But the point there is that, is that because I already had that big idea, as soon as I saw it, I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, this is exactly. People will come for the fondue, and they'll stay for the economic ideas about cartels. <laughs> By the way, you have never seen angry letters until you make a joke about divorced dads. I am so, so sorry about that. Um, so uh, that, that's how I did it. Like, so I store these ideas and I start small. But um, other people have these different systems. So Hannah Jaffe Walt, who used to work for us, she would always start in the opposite way. She'd start with these big ideas and usually something in the news. And she had this um, beautiful idea that whatever is happening anywhere, there is somebody whose job it is every single day to go do it. And that person probably brings a lunch to work and hates their job and are intensely human experience in the middle of banking reform, you know, or healthcare reform. Uh, so she did this time and time again, so brilliant. Uh, once we were uh, debating pre-existing conditions in the United States, it's a healthcare thing, don't worry Australians, uh, but basically insurance companies were like, oh, you were once sick, you don't get insurance ever again. They were debating this as an idea, and Hannah's like, wow, I bet that's a bad job to have to call people all day and say you're not getting health insurance. Um, and she always found the people who did the job. They don't have horns, they don't hate humanity. They're nice. They have cookies in the break room. On Friday afternoon, they bring their babies into the office here in southern Connecticut. The boss even makes sure that everyone has headsets so they don't hurt their neck while they're doing this all day long. Hi, Mary. This is Cindy Hartsburg with Health Plan One Calling. How are you today? Cindy works on behalf of health insurance companies, and she deals with the people who call in and want to buy individual policies. Individuals, humans with problems. And Cindy's job is to figure out which kind of problem as quickly as possible. Mary, this caller's problem, fibromyalgia. Unfortunately, Mary, based on um, the different carriers that we represent, uh, the condition that you have is considered high risk, and it's an automatic denial for coverage. So uh, another brilliant story, but starts in the opposite way. Start big and look small. And you can do this either way. There's, there's another trick that we do at Planet Money sometimes, uh, which if you've listened to the program, you know, which is when a story we just can't find the right person or the story is so big that it requires hundreds of people, then we just do it ourselves. And uh, this was a difficult pitch. I worked for a journalistic organization at first. So the first time we said... Um, we want to get into the t-shirt business and we want to manufacture t-shirts and, and go around the world. And they're like, oh, you want to follow somebody doing it? We're like, yeah, no, we, we actually want to harvest the cotton and, and make the yarn and watch people sewing the t-shirt. And um, they allowed us to do it. We sold the t-shirts um, and then we did it again and again. We drilled for oil and we followed 100 gallons of oil uh, and we just launched a satellite into space and the nice thing about this is that as soon as you set up like our oil, our t-shirt, you know, our satellite, the Planet Money satellite, there is like a, especially among the listeners, longtime listeners, like there's an ownership and you have someone to cheer for. It's a little hunk of metal that you're launching into space. But uh, it's, it, you know, once you get into these sort of things, it's very easy for us uh, because... The, the narratives sort of write themselves. They start at the beginning, they end at the end. Uh, I don't have the piece of tape that I thought I had here, uh, but I can do it. I can do it. Uh, <laughs> it writes the ending itself. Five, four, three, two, one. <sighs> oh my God, oh my God, it's so bright, it's so bright. There's fire coming out of the back and oh, it's so bright, it's going in the sky. That's... That's literally what the tape sounds like. <laughs> I've heard it so many times, I could, I could just do this whole thing without, without tape. So, um, so we sit in the room, we bicker around, uh, we argue, okay, fine, that's a fine story idea, but who's the character, who can you find there, uh, can you accomplish it, can it be done in three to four weeks, um, is, there, is there a structure that's gonna work for this? We argue around, and then we approve a very small number of stories, maybe 10%. And the most important thing when we leave the room after this brutal process on Tuesday is that the person is excited about the story. 
we have rarely ever assigned a story to anyone. Someone has to just like, the, the, the coming three weeks are gonna be so bad that if you don't love it at the very beginning, then you are in for a nightmare. And you also have to remember how excited you are. That's gonna come in useful in step five, but we are not there yet. We are in step two, make a map. So the meeting ends, we all go hunt out for better coffee than the editor made. And um, literally before we start doing interviews, we start this fantasy process where we just start like, oh my God, you know what would be amazing? It would be amazing if it started like this and you had someone like this and you put on waiters and you actually went into the guy's backyard and the septic tank had overflowed and it's like smells terrible and you got the tape and the neighbors are like, oh, I can't believe a septic tank broke. It's an actual story we're working on. Um, but we're, we're literally laying out the story. We know nothing about it, but we're trying to get uh, a structure in place so we know what we're hunting for. Because once again, we don't have a lot of time. We have a lot of time compared to our Daily Reporter brethren, but not compared to some of the beautiful artists in the other room uh, here. Uh, so we have to like get the right tape. So even before we know who we're gonna talk to, we start to, to lay it out. Sometimes we, uh, we draw it in circles. Other people have a whole little flow chart they do. But um, we're focused on these sort of elements that we know have to be in the show. So. We know there's a top, an anecdotal top. We argue about that. And we also know that there's going to be this section we call uh, the hello and welcome or the hawadaba, which means hello and welcome to Planet Money. And every single one of these, we try to make them sound nice, but every single one is essentially the same, which is it contains a question and a promise. And the idea is, especially since the, the topics we're dealing with, we have to be super overt. And believe me, I am jealous of all of you who can just wind people in with the beauty of the sound. And everyone's like, oh, I love this person. But for us, we have to be super ham-handed. We have to say, this is the question. This is what we're going to do for you over the next 20 minutes. And uh, I could literally play any show, but I'll play you one of my favorites, two of my favorites. Um, the first one is Adam Davidson. He just wanted to do something on a, a matzah factory. I'm outside of New York, so I should ask. Matzah, you know what this is? It's an unleavened cracker uh, that they serve in Passover. Jews do. Um, so matzah factory. And, and, listen, and everyone's like, oh, who wants to listen to a story about a matzah factory? And he was the best. And he's like, watch this. Listen to his question and promise how big he made this. And today on the show, we look at matzah as a business. How do you make money manufacturing a dry, fairly flavorless cracker based on a several thousand year old recipe that a tiny percentage of the population eats just one week a year? It turns out this very niche industry holds several pretty profound lessons for the economy as a whole. We're going to hear all about it in a minute. Wow. I mean, you get fun, you get profound lessons of the economy, uh, you get the, the little story and the big idea. Um, and there's this sort of competition that happens especially during the edits, to see, like, how big, how big can you make the promise without lying? Um, and, uh, and Elise Spiegel and Hannah Jeffy Walt did one for us, and I think they won the contest here. This is a story about fraud, but listen how they frame it. And on today's show, this is a story you and I have been working on for quite a while. We are going to try to explain why people do bad things. That's right. We are going to take all of the traditional answers to that question, why people do bad things, and we're going to throw them away, and we're going to propose new ways to explain our bad behavior. Yeah, it's huge. Okay, and they deliver on it, which is great. So we're thinking about the question. We often talk about it. Like, what is your question? What are you going for before we go out to interview? And then we talk a little bit about the structure, and the structure's usually like, uh, you know, maybe it's three acts, it's five acts. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. But one of the very peculiar quirks of our show that we've discovered from the very beginning, is that sometimes our concepts are so difficult that we can't be subtle at all. We are super ham-handed about how we think about the structure of the show and how we tell people up front what the structure is. It's kind of like one of those uh, postmodern buildings, you know, where you can see all the ductwork and, and the framing of it. That is our show. And I, I wanted to, to play you just some of the structural elements for a show that we did. Uh, this is a show about uh, the United States dollar bill. Unlike every civilized country on earth, uh, we have not replaced it with a coin, but there's always this debate, should the US dollar bill become a coin? 
fairly easy question, except it, it gets into all of these, like the very nature of money itself. Um, and so I'm just, I'm going to strip out all the charm. I stripped out all of the charm and the interviews and, and basically all the content of the episode. And I'm just going to play you the structural elements. So let's start with uh, that, uh, that uh, question and that promise. Today on the show, should we kill the $1 bill? There's legislation in both the Senate and the House that would eliminate $1 bills and replace them with dollar coins. We ask, should we do that? And we find a pretty clear answer. All right. Good promise. Uh, I'll play you the first signpost. We call them signposts. I don't know if they call it the same thing here. But the signpost is literally, it's our signposts, our signposts are in giant fonts. It's like this way. Before we get there, let's hear from both sides. In one corner, arguing for coins, we have Senator Tom Harkin, Democrat from Iowa. His pitch involves a vending machine in the basement of some Senate building. At least that's where I think this video is shot. And then you hear four or five minutes of pure charm and delight. Just to recap the arguments on the pro-coin side, point one, vending machines. Point two, they last longer and will save a bunch of money. Point three, lots of other countries are doing it. Now, let's hear from the paper people. All right, in the other corner, fighting for paper, meet Douglas Crane. And I, I will say he has a strong financial interest here also. He is vice president at Crane & Company, which makes the very paper that the U.S. $1 bill is printed on. So we go to his paper company. Once again, charm, 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 delight, delight, delight. We've got kind of a problem here. Coin people say coins are better. Paper people say paper is better. Both cannot be right. Two will enter, only one will leave. I think what we need now is a, is a neutral party. We need a, a referee to help us evaluate the claims from both sides. And fortunately, we have a neutral party. And it goes on, and they decide, by the way, that we should keep the, uh, the U.S. dollar bill. But um, I like to play this because even though a lot of times people are, are reticent, and in fact, in our edit, we're always like, you need to signpost more, you need to tell us where you're going. And I understand it's not subtle. It's clearly not subtle. But it's also not the worst thing you ever heard. Like with no, with no content whatsoever, it's still bright and interested and, and funny and they're doing the little talk. And so signposting can be, can be uh, a beautiful thing. And uh, so we're talking about all of this. Once again, we haven't even gotten to the interviews yet. And I should say, by the way, um, that if you don't get a structure, if you don't work at the very beginning to get the right tape for a structure, you might default to the laziest structure, which you never want to use, which is you just divide everything into five parts and do a numbered list. <laughs> Step three. <laughs> Don't be me. Uh, create human moments. Okay, so right now I have made this sound like the worst place in the world to work. You got, it's a very, you have to get this particular kind of story and we, we structure it to death and everyone's talking and they're, they're fantasizing about characters. It's totally predictable. You know exactly where you're going to go before you talk to anyone. What's the fun in that? Now is where the, everything starts to unravel. So we just start to go and do our interviews. And um, we do exactly what all of you do audio we do, everything is exactly the same. It takes us forever to find the right people. It takes us forever to book them. Um, we ask questions for information and facts. We ask them to tell stories. We ask them for emotional moments, the whole standard thing. But the thing that's crucial for our show is what I call create human moments. And this is um, because I think we're so structured and because we're dealing with these, these global invisible forces, we really need in our interviews for something to happen because oftentimes we don't have action in the story. So literally like a laugh is, is a little human moment. Uh, a reaction of those of us who are doing the interviewing to the interviewee is a little reaction. Uh, a little back and forth is even better. Something that, that makes them seem human, uh, even though they may be uh, an economist. Uh, they do have humanity inside. So we're looking for anything that can just mean that as you're listening, it's just a little treat. So, you know, we try to gather four or five of these per episode. So you have your structure and you want to find them in between. And so I'll just play you uh, one example of this with uh, Stacey Vanek-Smith, no relation, and uh, 
be surprised how many times we have to say that. Um, Stacey Van Smith is, is one of the best at this. Uh, when we were out at the rocket launch, um, it's, it was so difficult because it's literally the most exciting moment of my entire life. Like we are sending something to space on a rocket on the coast of California. And everyone's been through it before and you have all of these rocket scientists and everything and they keep referring to it as uh, the vehicle. And every time they said the vehicle, Stacey Vanek Smith would, would, would jump in, you mean the rocket? Um, so good at like, just like coming up with that human moment. Um, and and this, is, this one was great because uh, we had this guy who was our sort of minder, he's the science expert. And Stacy started to have him, every time there was a weird word on the little radio, because we're listening on this little radio, she would have him define it. And you can see what I mean by, by bringing him out a little bit. LC, vehicle, FTS internal voltage and current are nominal. And I copy that vehicle. Nominal is, nominal is our mean? favorite word. It what means does nominal mean? Everything is okay. Nominal? Yeah. <laughs> that no. is, I think, the most sort of calm. If there's a word that is calmer than nominal, I've never heard it. So if someone says it is non-nominal? Probably off-nominal. Off-nominal? Uh, off-nominal. Yeah. That means big trouble. Oh. <laughs> it means run. It means it's not, not nominal. <laughs> so it's a fun little moment. It also comes in crucial as we get to the part of the story where uh, things get dicey on the launch and you don't want to be defining things. But now you know what nominal means. And when you hear it, uh, you're like, like it has that thrill of recognition. So it worked super well. Um, so all of our interviews have this sort of lean-in quality to them. And uh, you know, I hear other radio producers who can spend seven, eight hours and they lean back and they're letting the person talk and everything. When Stacy and I are in on an interview uh, in the studio together, we are sitting on the edge of our seats. It's like we're crouched like this. Like we're, wait like we're, we're waiting for anything that we can sort of create a reaction to, we, that we can, we can make into this, this fun little moment. And uh, the hardest thing to deal with are numbers, and I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna need a volunteer here. All right, come on up, this is very easy. I'm gonna show you how Planet Money handles numbers. What's your name? Rajesh. Rajesh. Uh, into this microphone, I want you to say a number between zero and 100 billion. 128. 128? 128? Yeah. And thank you. That's what we do. <laughs> we literally repeat every number we hear with a sense of amazement and joy. I hesitate to tell you because it's, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. But there's a reason because it's numbers do actually mean something. And the person telling you the number oftentimes can't, or it means something automatically to them, they, they don't articulate it. So, you know, if, if somebody says $1 million, and that person is a hot dog cart vendor saying how much he's in debt, you're like, whoa, $1 million. Whereas if the government has just built a battleship, uh, and they managed to you know, finish the last bit for a, a million dollars, you're like, whoa, a million dollars. Like, it's not a, the, it has a different emotional resonance to it. Um, and I'm gonna play you a, an example of this, and then I'm gonna play you the raw tape, because it doesn't always happen the way you want it to. Uh, so this is Jacob Goldstein. Oh, you have to know the story is about pallets. Do you know what pallets are? These wooden things that go underneath shipments? Uh, this guy was trying to invent this new kind of pallet. Jacob's interviewing him. Uh, this was the final version. And here, like, Jacob's amazed by this number. How many pallets would you have to build to get at going? Minimum, at minimum, very minimum, 5 million to 10 million pallets. Just for 5 million pallets, you need $100 million. hundred million? Do you have $100 million? I don't have $100 million. Surprisingly not. <laughs> All right. Uh, the fact that he was amazed is great because, like, Jacob had to do the math. How many pallets would you have to build Rotate. to get going? At minimum, at min very minimum, 5 million to 10 million pallets. 10 million pallets at 20 bucks each? Yes. So you yes. tell me you need $200 million to get yes, into sir. the block? You know what? I want you to do the math. Uh, so so how, much, how much money do you need to get into the block pallet business? You, you, 
you need a minimum of five million pallets in the supply chain. That's just to get you started. And five million pallets, how much money is that? Well, approximately $20 each. You're talking about $10 million. Uh, That's just for five million pallets. uh, No, it's more. Yeah. It's 100 million. I think you're right. Sorry, so, do, no, no, just do it again. Yeah. But actually, so how much money do you need to so get it? Actually, a- just for $5 million pallets, you need $100 million. $100 million? Do you have $100 million? I don't have $100 million. Surprisingly not. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's shameless. Like a lot of the things we do, we have no shame. And once again... We have a mission here. We have to make these global forces seem human and relatable, and numbers are just part of that that we have to do. So we spend two weeks or so, much longer if we have to travel, but shorter if it's a newsy thing with one interview, um, doing these interviews. um, And then we've basically done so much work that we uh, write in just an hour, and it's totally easy. Nah, I'm just kidding. No, it's (laughs) writing. Writing is absolutely horrible no matter what. Um, even if you've done all this work and you have your structures and you have your, your, your little human moments. But I will skip because no one wants to hear about the, the pain of writing. I will skip to click. Step four, always be editing. Um, basically, after you've written the first page, your editor will uh, pressure you into setting an edit date. And that's because everyone on the staff uh, 10, 11 of us, sometimes people viewing, we all cram into a tiny, tiny little office uh, that's incredibly hot. And we all listen to the piece performed live. So we've written a script, firing tape like I am right now. And, and it's interesting because uh, a lot of shows, they're doing these complicated mixes and people listen to them. But doing it live is, is great because you can tell when the room turns cold when everybody hates you for wasting their time. It's, I don't even know what it is. You can just feel it. And as you're, you're literally reading and you're going, oh man, I'm cutting this section because it's just not playing. And then you hear people laugh and uh, then sometimes you hear uh, uh, <laughs> someone, they use Sharpies, just like, er, 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 putting X's all the way down the edit. Um, and then what we do is we ask everyone, it's pretty simple, uh, our editorial process is, you know, anyone can do it. It's about uh, paying attention to your own feelings. We just have them write down any moment where they're bored or they have questions. You know, it's pretty easy. And um, you just pay attention to the, the gut feeling. If you start to think about what you're having for dinner, then you mark it down on the script, you know? Um, and then afterwards, we sort of debate the structure and we, we, we toss out different ideas. Um, I have taped just about every edit ever done at Planet Money. And they are almost all unlistenable because everyone's talking over each other and they're, they're in different ends of the room and it's, it's echoey and it's just, it's just absolutely terrible. I did want to play just very briefly, uh, just a little bit so you can hear and edit. This is from a few years ago, uh, Zoe Chase and Caitlin Kenyon here. It's, it was a story about uh, Ford Motor Company um, was trying to revive its luxury Lincoln brand. The details don't matter. Just listen to sort of the fun and excitement of, of the edit. My main thought is like that you're not setting the stakes high enough. Right, right. Like you have that line towards the end where you say, Ford sold off all their other luxury yeah, yeah, lands. Yeah, They're yeah, banking no, on that, this. You breeze right by that yeah, thing. And yeah, I was yeah. like, oh my God. That needs to come much that earlier. Was huge. Right? I, yeah, you I need to give me like, a reason to give, care. We exactly. We, we haven't said like, they're betting the farm on doing exactly. this thing. Right, you right. Need to right. Say yeah. Or the staple company of America about, needs this. Yeah, the to thing about Volkswagen doing the like fifty percent of its profits coming from the Audi, right? Yeah. Audi. Yeah. Like that's right. like that's that's awesome, but like you only kind of that seems like that's the framework for the whole thing. And so what I wanna have happen is like you say that about Volkswagen, you're like, so this is huge. And then explain to me, like get specific about like Ford's situation and like what they want to accomplish right. with the Lincoln. So picture Sonari Glinton's just worked a ton of time on this. Uh, and this goes on for hours. And it's just like, here's what I want to hear. Um, but you know, you guys have been in edits. Um, uh, it is an incredibly valuable process. And I think that um, some people on the show uh, who are newer to the show would prefer a model whereby they can do a sort of rough mix and then everyone shares it on Slack and then everyone sort of just puts comments quietly in the, it's just like a low, low, you know, confrontation kind of thing, which I understand. Um, 
I think you could be a more careful listener, but what you lose is this sense of, in the room, there's a sense of competition almost as an editor. Like you want to be the person who comes up with the good line or, uh, you know, the, the structural tweak. And you can feel people in the room like, oh, no, how, you know, how about this and how about this, uh, which I find to be an exciting process unless it's my story. Uh, and then it is so freaking painful. Um, so after this, we will go and rewrite. Uh, we will... Uh, the co-host usually comes in at this point. One person's been carrying the load. Co-host comes in, helps to rewrite with, with the editor, and then we um, oftentimes do another edit, or maybe we'll do a rough mix. And this brings us to click. Step five, remember why you used to love the story. So you, you've been through the gauntlet here, and you just hate everything about this story. And this is why we have two hosts. I mean, this is, this is where it comes in super useful. Because we sit down to, to do our voicing, and we're sitting right across from each other, you know, three feet away. We're looking into each other's eyes. We have the script. Everything is structured and edited. Everything's rewritten. Everything is, is so tight. And then we allow ourselves to sort of unravel it a bit, to put some of the, the joy back into it. And this is where the producer, invariably, in our ear, after we do a couple terrible versions, says, you used to love this story. I remember in the edit, I remember in the, in the pitch, right? Because everyone was there. I remember in the pitch, you said this. You were, you were excited. You could not wait to go talk to these people. And so you try and return the things that have been stripped away by the process and to put them back in. And this is where, well, as we're doing it, we're just trying to like, we add some, we put some ad libs in there, we uh, react to each other, we, we swap lines, um, we just try to make it more casual and, and going off script. But because we have such a tight script, we know how, how tight the corners are. Like we don't want to add, we'll add it probably a minute to two minutes in the voicing, but no more than that, because we know that the structure is working. I, I wanted to just play a little bit of this because sometimes, sometimes you solve a problem right there in the studio. Uh, we recently did a show on the World Trade Organization, and it was super hard to do because uh, nobody in, the, in this World Trade Organization debate would talk to us because they're all lawyers and they're all countries and they're fighting. And so we, everything was based on... Um, on emails and documents and that sort of thing. And I did it with Sarah Gonzalez, and, um, and we, we were just having trouble explaining the two different sides of the argument. This is between Indonesia and the United States. Uh, the United States banned flavored cigarettes, like clove cigarettes, and Indonesia's like, dude, we make clove cigarettes. And um, by the way, why didn't you ban your own menthol cigarettes? That's a flavor too. It all went to the, the WTO, and whatever, we explained it, it was fine. And then we came up with the idea, um, really in the studio, that we would each play different sides of this. And the, and the producer the whole time is like, bigger, more, like do this sort of thing. Like, you're Indonesia, Sarah. Robert, you're the United States. Like, stand up for yourself. And I'll just play uh, a little bit of how we did the, uh, the uh, description of the very first hearing. The US walks in and says, look, we're banning flavored smokes to protect the kids. And I'm sure some countries would love to have a bunch of 12-year-olds smoking their clove cigarettes in Indonesia, but we don't. And Indonesia is like, oh, really? You care about the kids? Then why are you still allowing a candy cane-flavored cigarette? Uh, not candy cane. It's menthol, and it's a palate cleanser. It's a flavor, and kids in the U.S. are smoking menthols, too. No, you're just protecting your own U.S. tobacco companies and punishing the rest of the world. No, 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 no. This is not about foreign versus domestic products. We never mentioned any other countries in this law. Anyway, we stuck with our list but of flavors. No, and we are that. allowed no, we to do that. But, no, but, 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 stalemate. So uh, that'll take two, three hours, and then uh, we'll get a, a, a rough mix from that, and we'll do a few more tweaks, uh, come back in, and sometimes retract the entire thing, although they call it retracts at that point. Is it really retracts or is it just tracks? Um, and then uh, we're just so relieved 
we've done our part, the two reporters sit down, and uh, our poor producer goes into a tiny little room and listens to our voice over and over again for the next two days. Um, and then that's it. We, we publish the story, and then we have to do another one in three days. So obviously, everyone on the team is working their own stories, moving it through, um, and sort of coming to fruition, hopefully, on, on a regular schedule. But um, that is... That's the process. Big ideas, tiny stories, strong predictable structure, uh, spontaneity, tightly edited script, both room for ad-libs. And uh, so far, what did I say the number was? The number was 845 episodes. Which, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know how to do it. Uh, I am happy to take questions now and and I can't believe I have to tell a room of producers this. Wait for the microphone. They are taping this. Hello, Robert. I hope it's embarrassing. Oh, no, no. Um, it's a two-parter. So um, it's kind of messy. What's the average ratio of what gets heard as to what gets recorded produced? Like, is it like 100 to 1? And I know that changes. This is the second part. Does that change for um, series like you doing the 100... The hundred barrels of oil, and doing field interviews like yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I'm just give me an yeah. average. Yeah, the ser- uh, I, I, you know, maybe forty to one. Uh, when we did the series, the oil series, it might have been a hundred to one because Stacy and I followed the entire pipeline from Wichita to Omaha um, through back roads, and we just taped the entire time, including like we would make up songs. You know, the pipeline is always on the right. The pipeline is always and just. Hundreds of hours of that uh, that will never be heard. Another question? Hey, Robert. Hey. How do you get the best use out of um, your paper edit? So you've gone through your transcript, you put the words in the order you, you want it to look, to, to sound. Is it literally then going back to the Pro Tools session, making sure that matches, and then if you make more changes, you have to make sure that both of those editing processes are you know, consistent? There's rarely a session going before that first edit. So um, it depends on, some people like to work everything in Pro Tools at the very beginning. Um, NPR also has its own auditing system, uh, sorry, editing system, which is terrible, but I use it. Um, so really you're walking into the room with just, uh, just the audio cuts you're gonna use. You don't have a lot of the, the sound or music or anything. And you're just, you're just reading from the script and playing it. So there's very little audio work done, which I like because it may all get thrown out. So we really need to see, like, is the structure working? Is it right at the length? Do we need to get different tape? Um, do we need to move everything around? And then it's just later in the process, once that happens and we get to the voicing, that's where we'll voice and get everything into Pro Tools and do the mixes. And then we have people who are listening specifically for mix notes and people who are listening for content notes. Um, the reporters tend to focus on, oh, is that wrong? Uh, is this clear? And then the producers are focusing on, on, on levels and, and, and does this flow nicely and that sort of thing. Are there any economic concepts that you've really struggled to make human? Oh, yeah. 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 So, um, so bank, so I'm just like, I got to pick one. Uh, banking reform has been almost impossible to cover. And it is a process that happens behind closed doors with concepts that are so complicated that it would require far more than 20 minutes to explain the base concept and then say, and that's what they're trying to change. Stay tuned for part two for the technical revisions to that. And it's, it's, it crushes me because the only people in those rooms who understand what are going, what's going on are bankers. And it is a mission and a job that we should be there and explaining this to people. Everyone should know this. It's just, it's just so, so, so hard. And so I'm waiting. It's, it's, that's like front of the line in the back of my head. Back of my head, front of my line. And just like if I ever see something that I can, that I can jump on that, I'm totally doing it. Oh. Hi. Um, so I'm just wondering whether you have ever considered expanding internationally, like, say, to Australia? 
because ask me about superannuation funds well no seriously i'm into them that's the thing like i know so much about the american economy and it's so engaging but i know little to nothing about the australian economy because we only have bankers and lawyers and politicians talking about it over here we need something like fun and engaging and i don't know no uh, i would that would be great it's, it's amazing here. I would love to move here. Um, we obviously do stories internationally, but they are very much focused uh, on US listeners. And so when, when I've been reading about, for those of you listening on the podcast who aren't well-versed in this, pretty much everyone in the room too, uh, there is this, uh, they've made a huge mistake with their retirement funds here in Australia. And it's a fascinating mistake because uh, they tried to fix the problem we have in the United States where um, young people especially would rather spend the money now than save for the future. Australia said, well, fine, we're just going to require everybody to save now. But the same feeling, because it's all required, nobody's paying attention to the details and being charged far too much money. I think it's a fascinating story. But, and I may talk to the team when I go back, but what they're going to tell me is they're going to say, well, I mean, the average United States listener is concerned about their retirement funds, but not uh, Australia's retirement funds. So um, unless there was you know, uh, an absolutely wild story of the person who invented it and their dream, and now their dreams have been smashed, and, uh, and, they're, and they're weeping, I thought I'd solve the problem, but it's not ever going to solve the problem. See, that's my dream tape. Uh, <laughs> but unless there's that kind of human element, it's going to be a hard sell. But, Absolutely. Like, like this is one of the great things about working on the program is like, I believe that people should know this stuff. I really do. And uh, it was fascinating to read the newspapers this week in Australia about this retirement crisis because they tried to make it hip. Like for, they're like, oh, this is going to get the 20 somethings in here reading about this. And they literally had graphics in the newspaper in Melbourne of baristas uh, with like, this barista saved, you know, this barista makes $30,000 a year and how's the plan affecting him? Um, which I'm glad they're trying to make that, bring young people back to newspapers. But then the stories had all this jargon in them and I didn't know why they did it in the first place and I didn't know who the villain was, like who, like where did this go wrong? I didn't, I just didn't know the story and I'm trying to get into it because I'm actually interested and it's hard for me to get in the door. So I can't imagine other than those of you in Australia feeling like, oh, something, something went wrong there. Um, there. Nobody's presented a pathway in to understand it. So I guess this is all to say, like, do it. Do it. We'll license the name, I'm sure, right? Um, just picking up on that about the jargon, inevitably you're going to have to talk to economists and I've interviewed economists and the smartest guy in the room, but often super dry. Yep. So how And usually do, a guy. Yeah. 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 I did say that, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> it's a sad I'm, truth, but we'll, do, we'll handle that I'm later. I'm trying so to I'm think of an exception, but I can't. But anyway, so how do you get around that? Like, how do you make somebody like that? Do you do what I think this American Life or producers have done in the past is say, oh, can you say that again, but can you say it? in another way or oh yeah i mean we we absolutely hammer them and we um it is actually important um because i made this mistake for 10 years of my career which was i wanted them to think i was smart these incredibly smart people and so i tried to keep up with them and now i am just like their worst nightmare. I'm just like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand it. They're like, you've literally done this program for almost a decade. Nope. I don't understand what you're talking about. Um, so there's that. But, but more than that, there is a kind of mission that says, whoever you're talking to is a real person. They're a real person. And you have to find that. And sometimes it takes forever with economists because they're geared up. They want to talk about the jobs numbers. Uh, but they don't want to talk about their first job. And so... Usually, you know, you let them wear themselves down and then you ask them just like human questions. So this comes to mind, we were talking to a Canadian oil economist and he was talking about oil independence and da 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 da. And, and we were like, well, where do you get your gas? Like, literally, where's your gas station? And what's the name of it? And we called up his gas station. Like, that's a tiny little thing, but all of a sudden he's just not a talking head. He's a dude who has to like get gas at the corner. 
Uh, hi, Robert. My name's Dan, and I invented superannuation, so maybe we can talk later. Yes! Um, you have a lot to answer for. <laughs> Just a quick question on teams uh, and, how, and how you schedule teams out. Um, uh, how many people work on a story, and how do you schedule them out across, say, a, a month? Um... Yes. Uh, so our editor has a calendar with a bunch of sticky notes on there, which he has on sticky notes because it's the illusion of impermanence, but really uh, that's the schedule. Uh, uh, it's, and it's all, he has a whole, he has a very difficult job managing all the anxieties of the reporters and, and expectations. Um, so what happens is uh, we used to work in pairs and it just like was taking too long. So now it's generally one person has one story idea it's vetted by the group, we plan it out, then that person goes out by themselves and takes two or three weeks, um, does all the interviews, does the first draft. Obviously, we work in a small team in a small office, so we talk all the time, but really that person's doing that and all the other reporters are working solely on their work. And then really in the last week, does another person come on as a co-host for the writing? And that's when a producer is assigned. So essentially, it's a team of three plus the editor who in that last week are doing that final push. So the editor is, is doing that twice a week. So he's very much at the end of, of all the different processes. The reporters are taking the long time and sort of focused on one topic. And uh, the producers are flitting between stories, but usually there's one who's like doing the hardcore mixing, get the show out, whereas another one's helping some of the other reporters book guests and, and, and come up with ideas and sometimes co-hosting. So that's the rundown. There never seem to be enough people to do it. Um, I don't know. I'd love to see more people and obviously an Australian outpost. Um, but, but we'll see. Next 10 years. 10-year goals. I'll be back in uh, 2028. Whoa. <laughs> Thanks, That was Robert Smith taking us under the hood for NPR's Planet Money at the 2018 Audiocraft Festival. Our podcast is produced by Selena Shannon with music by James Milsom. If you haven't already, subscribe. We'd love to stay in touch. You can sign up to our newsletter at audiocraft.com.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Audiocraft Fest. 